All right, welcome guys to our new Sunday evening Bible study series on the assurance of salvation. I've always been pretty fascinated and intrigued by the doctrine of assurance. It's something I studied pretty often early in my own faith, and, and really the first time I was ever a retreat speaker, I spoke on the assurance of salvation. This was over 10 years ago, 10 years since I've taught on this directly though, and I haven't done it at this church, so I figured this would be a great time to revisit it. I hope and trust this will be an informative and edifying time for you because the assurance of salvation is not just a doctrine to know. It's an important truth to live by. I mean, in a sense, it'd be quite tragic to have the gift of salvation, but not know it, or at the very least, not experience the full joy of the assurance of that salvation. And just to frame the discussion a little bit, consider this illustration. Imagine, you know, you're deeply in debt, you're far behind on your mortgage payment, you're drowning in credit card debt. You barely make any money. And you know it's just a matter of time before the collectors come and, and you lose your home. You're going to lose everything. In the meantime, though, you're living on a shoestring budget, just trying to get by and dig yourself out of this hole. But it seems impossible. And at your income, it, it is impossible. You're, you're only sinking further and further down. But unbeknownst to you, a mysterious benefactor comes along and saw your situation He took pity on you, decided to pay off all your debts in full. Your house now is fully paid for. Your credit card debts are wiped away. And even decided to transfer $10 million into your account. So now you're rich. But you don't know it. You never knew this transaction took place. So you continue to live in poverty as if you're still on a shoestring budget. You live in fear wondering when the collectors are going to show up. I mean, that would be so tragic. Now, that, that's not quite, though, a, a good picture of lacking salvation assurance because no one ever gets saved in secret. And by definition, to receive the gift of salvation, you have to be offered the gift of salvation through the gospel. and You have to accept that offer. Let's revise the scenario a little bit before we kind of drive it home. Let's say the mysterious benefactor was your father. And he saw your condition and he outright told you, because he loves you, that he's going to pay all your debts. He's going to transfer big money into your account. And you don't have to do anything to get this. You don't have to work for it or pay him back. It's just going to be a free gift. He just asked you to trust him and he said he'd make the transfer on the first of the month. And the first of the month has come and gone. So now you, you believe your dad. He's extremely trustworthy. You take him at his word. And you do trust him, but even still, you can exhibit one of two responses to this offer. Belief with some doubt, or belief with no doubt. So first, you could believe your father's offer, but maybe you're just prone to doubt and fear and worry. And so, although overall you believe him, you do trust him, but still you just can't help that these thoughts and questions just come into your mind. Does he really have that much money? And why would he do this for me? I, I'm not good enough. That, does he even love me that much? I mean, I, I don't deserve this. How could something like this happen to someone like me? I mean, he said he transferred the money, but how do I really know it happened? And so while you're, you're generally trusting your father, for, for some reason, you can't keep these thoughts at bay, and there, there's some doubt. And as a result, What is your response to, you know, the first of the month has passed and he said, okay, the transfer is done. What's your response though? 
you should be like totally happy, rejoicing, super thankful. Because in reality, all your debts were just paid in full and you're a millionaire. But because of your doubts and because you lack the assurance of this transaction that has actually happened for you, your joy and your thanksgiving are going to be tempered. You believe, you are thankful, but in the back of your mind, you wonder, you know, did he really pay my whole mortgage? And you are happy, but at the same time, you still catch yourself every now and then just fearing like, is the collector going to come soon? Or is he at the door? And so because of your lack of assurance, you don't get to experience the fullness of joy that should come with an amazing free gift of that magnitude. Now, there is no perfect illustration, but it somewhat parallels our situation. That God, our Heavenly Father, sees our sad state of spiritual debt. A debt we we have no hope of paying. It's going to take us eternity to pay back the debt of our sin before God. But in love and mercy, he decides to pay that debt for us in Christ Jesus. As I hope you know, that's the good news of the gospel. That Christ came to die and pay for the whole debt of our sin. And then God presents us this offer that as we just trust Jesus by faith, he's going to wipe out the complete sum of our sin debt just all at once. And on top of that, even grant to us, transfer to our account, the perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. That sounds like a very generous offer. And to receive it, all you have to do is, well, believe. As I hope you know, you have to trust Christ. You don't have to work for it or earn it. You don't even have to pay it back. You can't anyway. You simply have to cry out to Christ as your Lord and Savior in faith, and he promises you will receive it. But you know, we, we will learn that Saving faith, the type of faith that saves, it's not required to be perfect or complete faith. I mean, if you could only be saved by absolute perfect faith, who would be saved? Thankfully, we we learn from Christ himself, and especially in the Gospels, it only takes a little faith to save. You might call it faith the size of a mustard seed. If it's real faith, real trust in the Lord, it, it can save And in reality, we all begin with a real but imperfect faith. So what Jesus might call a little faith as opposed to great faith, we'll study that distinction later, but our faith is meant to grow. Saving faith can be real, yet has room to grow. It surely does. We're told to grow in our faith, and it should. But you see, this very fact leaves open the possibility of of someone truly believing in the Lord. They have real faith, but maybe it's little faith. Maybe they're wrestling with some doubt. And so long as you truly believe in Jesus, your salvation is not technically in jeopardy. But the joy of your salvation is, and the assurance of your salvation is. And maybe you just can't help but wonder. And we'll, we'll have a study later of like why we doubt, but maybe you just can't help but wonder, like, does God really love me? I've done so many bad things. Can he really forgive someone like me? I mean, I keep sinning over and over. Maybe that means I'm, I've never actually been saved. I believe in Jesus, but I don't, I don't feel anything right now. And so how do I know that it worked? How do I know that I'm actually born again? Nothing feels radically different. How do I really know that this spiritual transaction has taken place I'm, I'm, I'm really all forgiven and, and righteous now in God's eyes. Like, how, how do I know? 
And needless to say, many come to believe, but doubts and questions linger. And so they don't have the full assurance of their salvation. And that, like I said, hampers their joy. It can impede their witness and have many adverse effects. And this truly is tragic to go through the Christian life, but you're still living under a measure of fear. You're lacking security that one's name has been written in the book of life. Instead, our response to God's offer of the gospel should be just all belief with no doubt. That's what it should be, just belief with no doubt. We should just take God at his word. And the Father says those who who trust Jesus, repent of their sins, and cry out for mercy and and faith, he will justify them. You know, by grace, he's going to declare them not guilty, and he will transfer their sin debt to Jesus, and he will grant them perfect righteousness. He will adopt them. He will give them eternal life. These are God's promises for the one who believes. And so, as you believe, ideally, well, you should just totally rejoice and overwhelmingly give thanks and worship. You should celebrate like that's all actually true for you. That's what God promised for those who believe. You believe you're clinging to Christ. That means all those promises are true for you. If you're truly saved, that this assurance should be, it should come and it should lead you to live a life in response as God intended. Needless to say, though, I think at this point, we've kind of labored an illustration long enough. I, I trust the issue at the very least resonates with you because I'm going to bet that most of you have experienced at some point or another a measure of, of that doubt or just uncertainty, insecurity, questioning. I mean, whether you're questioning some of God's promises or whether you're just questioning yourself, you're questioning it, you know, the strength or the reality of your own faith, or if, if this is just, if it's actually happened to you. I bet you've had those times where you've lacked, you know, the full assurance of your salvation. Am I really saved? All those promises of God, do they really apply to me? And that, of course, leads to a slew of additional questions, like, how can I know? Can I know? Is it even possible? Is it even possible to know that you're saved beyond any doubt? Is that real? And if so, how? Like, what is assurance based on? And then, how do I get it? All this and more we aim to find out in this Sunday night study. Now, tonight, of course, it's just general introduction. If you came thinking we'll answer all those questions in the first lesson, you don't know me. <laughs> but as we introduce the issue, we kind of ease into the discussion. We're beginning by just framing it and help you better understand some of the basic, basic issues. And in the weeks to come, as we build on it and build on it and build on it, we will, we're willing to answer all those essential questions of the assurance of salvation. And hopefully this will help you come closer to gaining assurance of salvation in your own lives, because I can tell you already, you you should have it. The Lord intends for you to be assured of your salvation. Well, let's transition, though, to some of the basics now. Just, you know, introduction. Let's cover some basics. Let's talk assurance, definitions, and distinctions. Assurance, definitions, really definition, and distinctions. In case you might not know what we're talking about, how can you define the assurance of salvation? There's many ways to put it. You might say it's the security 
and confidence one has in knowing that his salvation is secure. The full confidence that one is saved. That means the confidence my sins have all been forgiven. The confidence that when I die, I will go to heaven. You say it's the certainty of possessing a saving relationship with God and Christ. Or you might say the settled assurance that one's name is written in the book of life. There's many ways to put it. Another way to think about it is that you know, assurance of salvation does not answer the question, how do I get saved? What is the gospel? How does the gospel save? No, assurance asks the question, how do I know if, if I'm saved? How do I know that that gospel has actually saved me? That's the question we're, we're answering essentially with assurance. Hopefully you understand assurance a little bit better if we make some simple but important distinctions between salvation and the assurance of salvation. And I know for a lot of you, these will seem like basic and obvious, but at the same time, you never know like who's listening online. You can't just assume where someone's coming from. So there's some like basic distinctions between salvation and the assurance of salvation. They're simple, but if you get them wrong, you're getting into some big trouble. So I'm going to give you two big distinctions. First, the basis of salvation versus the basis of assurance. Like what salvation is based on versus what assurance is based on. And not the same thing. So salvation, what is the basis of our salvation? It's faith, faith alone. Or you should say faith and, and faith alone. From, from our human perspective, our human response, that's it. It's just salvation by faith alone. We're saved by an act of God's grace alone and Christ alone through our, our faith alone, apart from works. And so again, when it comes to the human response, all that God commands and requires is faith. And that's why we say salvation is based on faith alone, right? Trust you all know that. It's very clear, but just to establish you know, a few verses that I hope you know. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves as a gift of, gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one will boast. In Titus 3, 5, now he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Romans three twenty eight. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So it's pretty clear. We're not going to get into that. It's not the point of this study. But hopefully you understand salvation. Your, your standing before God, your reconciliation to God is based, from, from the human perspective, on just faith alone. All right. Assurance of salvation is different, though. Assurance is not dealing directly with our status before God or our relationship with God, but rather our, our knowledge of that status, our knowledge of that relationship. So assurance is not really seeking to change our relationship with God per se. It's really seeking to confirm or deny whether we have a relationship with God. Like, have we been saved by faith? That's what we're trying to figure out. Now, turn to 1 John five thirteen. This is like the theme verse for assurance, obviously. Well, maybe it's not obvious, but if you know First John, 
It becomes obvious real fast. The turn of 1 John 5 will be in 1 John quite a bit for the whole study. And this evening, so turn to 1 John 5. Maybe the reason I took an early interest in the assurance of salvation in my Christian life and like kind of my teaching career or whatever you call it, but is the first book I ever taught through cover to cover was 1 John. And this is all largely about assurance. In fact, the theme verse for 1 John is 1 John 5.13. It's where you need to be. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John is writing to Christians, people who already believe in Christ. They're already believers. They've already been saved. They confess Christ. They have faith. Why is he writing? He's not telling them how to know Christ. They does, and it's still in 1 John, but he's primarily writing that they may know they have eternal life. Now, we're going to say that verse and 1 John quite a bit in the future. We don't need to do that right now. But the point we're making here is we will learn in time what the assurance of this salvation is based on. But suffice it to say for now, assurance, unlike salvation, is not based on faith alone. Salvation is based on faith alone. But the knowledge of your salvation is based on many things. or several things. We're not going to cover the whole list right now that is to come in the, in the next few weeks. But let me mention... Just one little point here, that there is some correlation between the assurance of salvation and your works or your deeds or your obedience. Let's turn back to 1 John chapter 2, another very critical verse in 1 John 2. There's no correlation between your salvation and your works or your deeds or your obedience. That should be the, the fruit of salvation. That's not the root of salvation. Saved by faith alone, apart from works. But assurance that does works, does deeds, does your obedience impact your assurance? Well, First John 2, 3 through 6, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him. Now, it looks pretty clear, right? He's not saying this is how we come to know him. That would be salvation. He says, this is how we know that we have come to know him. That's assurance of salvation. If that's not clear, you can always raise a hand or ask questions, but this is assurance. This is how we know, one of the ways we know that we've come to know the Savior. Verse 3, if we keep his commandments. That's not how you know Jesus, that's by faith. But one of the ways you know that you have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I've come to know him, so we have a professing believer. And does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, that's, that's false assurance. But verse 5, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. It's another way of putting it. This is how we know we're in Christ. This is how we know we're saved. Verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now we will come back to this passage and, and do the, the deep dive later. But I just bring this up on purpose. Assurance of salvation is not entirely based on works or obedience. It's not even primarily based on 
works or obedience. But as 1 John 2 makes clear, our obedience to God's commands, you know, our works, our deeds, it plays some part in the basis of assurance, right? We just read it. If we keep his commands, that's part of knowing that we've come to know him. But the only point I'm trying to make right now is if you don't maintain, if you don't make and maintain a clear distinction between salvation and the assurance of salvation, you're going to get in trouble. Give me some nods if this is making sense. You were saved by faith alone, but assurance is not on faith alone. Yeah, Ruthann? I'm saying what John is saying is that our deeds of obedience at keeping his commands plays a contributing uh, role in our assurance of salvation. Yes, absolutely. And we will have a a whole lesson uh, pretty much on the role of our love for others and our deeds of obedience and righteousness as it plays into our assurance. It's coming up maybe like week three or four or something like that. Okay. So look, in short, as we study the basis of assurance in the coming weeks, I just, I don't want anyone to get confused as if we're teaching salvation is based on love for the brethren or obedience or righteousness or our fruit. No, those do play some part in the assurance of of our salvation. Uh, They don't play a part in our salvation. Just again, it's a simple distinction, but we must make it. The second distinction The loss of salvation versus the loss of assurance. The loss of salvation versus the loss of assurance. And can salvation be lost? No. The Bible likewise very clearly teaches that genuine salvation cannot be lost. God is sovereign over salvation. It's his to give. And when he does so, doesn't take it back. When God justifies someone by faith, he, he never rescinds that justification. When God adopts someone into his family, he never gives them back. Just one verse, you know, John 10, 27 through 29. So clear, right? Or Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I will give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Those who are truly and genuinely Christ's sheep by his own sovereign will will never be lost. You can't, you can't steal his sheep. Now, again, that's not our goal to study tonight. Our goal is just to make this point that assurance is different. Assurance isn't like that. That's salvation. We're talking assurance of salvation. Can assurance be lost? Yes. The belief that one is saved can waver. It can change. We're going to learn that assurance, by definition, is is subjective. This does not mean it has no objective basis. It does. But at the end of the day, assurance is a personal response. It's not necessarily tied to one's salvation. And so what that means is, it's possible for a person to be truly saved, yet have no assurance of their salvation. Like, they could think, I I, I really, I'm not sure I'm saved. They could severely doubt that they're saved, but they have professed Christ and they do trust him as the savior. They're just wrestling with assurance for whatever reasons. They could get struck by a car and go to heaven. You can be genuinely saved yet lack assurance. 
It is possible. It's also possible that someone could have total assurance, but not be saved. They could 100% believe, like, when I die, I'm going to heaven, and they get that rude awakening, like in Matthew 7, that they don't. False assurance is a real thing. We'll have a whole lesson on that as well. False assurance. But all this goes to say, assurance is a variable that can change, unlike genuine salvation. That assurance can come and go, unlike genuine salvation. It's another little simple distinction that I want us to make and to maintain that we don't, we don't overlap and just get confused. All right, well, like I said, this first lesson is mostly general introduction, framing the discussion, laying some groundwork. But I did want to include, you know, one issue of some substance tonight, namely the attainability of assurance. The attainability of assurance. It isn't even possible to have assurance of salvation. And some say no. The Catholic Church, for example, teaches no. In their doctrine, it is not even possible or appropriate that a believer should have complete assurance of their salvation. They do not believe a believer can have meaningful assurance. And there are some Protestant Christians who agree. But no, Scripture teaches assurance is very real and it's very attainable. It is something that God intends us to possess So the rest of our time tonight, let's study now the attainability of assurance. Kind of a good, you know, introductory little study, right? The attainability of assurance. Are we we wasting our time with this whole study? Because if it's not even attainable, we just move on, study something else. But let's let's talk about the attainability of assurance. The Bible teaches it is possible for any and every Christian to be assured of their salvation. Assurance is presented as normative for believers, all Christians who are growing in their sanctification, repenting of their sins, that they're experienced, or rather they're expected to experience the assurance of salvation. Assurance is not a theoretical experience, but an actual and attainable state that believers can enjoy. Scripture exhorts believers to pursue full assurance, gives examples of those who have achieved assurance, and something worth studying. So let's kind of establish the attainability of assurance along three lines. Three three reasons, we might say, we think assurance is attainable. First, and from the language of Scripture, it's from the very language of Scripture when it's talking about assurance. There's many times and places where Scripture speaks of the assurance of our salvation, the knowledge of our own salvation. And when it does so, Scripture uses clear language that supports that the attainability of assurance. Like it's a real thing and it, it can be attained. In other words, assurance is not presented as like a hypothetical reality or, or this impossible hope. Know that when the biblical writers, when the Bible writers talk about assurance, it's always presented and spoken of as this is, a, this is a real thing. This is an attainable reality that we should experience just from the language. And specifically, we're going to read some verses here. And notice some key action words like are, or has, know. That'll make sense in a second. But these verbs, verbs that speak of our assurance, they're all in the present or the perfect tenses. None of them in the future tense. Just shows that our assurance, when it's spoken of, It's spoken of as a present 
reality, not some impossible future hope, something that may have begun in the past, but it's to be a present attainable reality. That might make more sense with some examples. Let's look at a few verses. In Romans 8, 16, it says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are. Not we hope to be, we might be. No, the, the Spirit gives a present witness to the reality of our adoption and new status that we can say the Spirit testifies we are presently children of God. We'll do a, a, its own lesson or part, part lesson on the, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit as contributing to assurance. Let's do some First John verses. If you're still there, go to First John 3. First John chapter 3. Verse 1. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Again, he doesn't say such we will be. He doesn't say, you know, you will be or become a child of God if if you just endure. No, Scripture speaks as if that is our current state. We, We are children of God, adopted. And it just assumes that we can know that is our current state. First John 5.11. I'll keep you in First John's. So we'll just make it quick. First John 5.11. It says, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This is a gift that, when you come to faith, it, it is given, it has been given, a present reality. God doesn't take the gift back. And so if you've received it, you have it. You're meant to know you, you have it. You have this gift that has been given. In 1 John 5.19, he says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. These are things we know. This is, John speaks of his own assurance and plural. This is Christian assurance. He doesn't say, we hope that we're of God. No, we, we know that we are of God. How we know, we'll get there. Why we know? We'll get there, but look, John assumes what he knows, we should know something that is knowable, right? First John uh, 2, 3, we already read by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is a knowable entity. It's something that can be discovered. First John 3, 14, and we know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. You can already see there how love for the brethren forms part of the basis of assurance. But again, he uses the term know. This is an assured reality. Our our transition from death to life, our new birth. It's something that that we can know. It, It can be known to us. You're supposed to know that that change has taken place. God wants you to know. You've passed from death to life, not just to only, you know, hope hypothetically, I'm only hoping. He wants you to know and have assurance. That's what assurance is, is having that knowledge. I've passed from death to life. It's another way you could define assurance, just that knowledge. Now, again, this might sound like this is, this is kind of like no duh, this is really obvious. But again, there are some Christians who do not think believers can or should have assurance. 
And really, it's the whole point of 1 John, again, back to the theme verse of 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you, really the whole letter, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wanted his audience to be assured. He believed they could be assured. I mean, if, if this is not possible or attainable, it really makes in a sense, like the whole letter of 1 John, void. Just, I, guess, I guess we don't really need 1 John because this whole reason for writing is impossible. But no, th- this is something we can know, we can discover. It can be true for you and you're meant to. So just from the, the language of Scripture, we see the, the attainability, the reality, the knowability. Uh, this is something that can be attained. The second line of reasoning from the command to pursue it, from the command to pursue assurance of salvation. And maybe for the sake of time, I'll read some verses, but if you're quick and you want to flip around, you can do so. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 is the next one. Second Peter 1, verse 10, or Peter commands his audience. He says, therefore, brethren... Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So it's a verse referencing our election, God's calling and choosing of you. God knows those whom he has called and chosen. He knows. He secures them. But Peter tells us to, to be diligent, to, to make certain that we are, we are the called, we are the chosen. Now, if assurance is not possible, that becomes an impossible command. We're going to study 2 Peter 1. It's a very big verse when it comes to the basis of assurance. Like, okay, how do we do that? How do we, you know, show diligence to make certain I've been called and chosen of God, uh, that I am of the elect, or of the elect, rather. Like, how do we do that? We'll learn. But clearly, Peter believes that these Christians can be certain about their, their calling and choosing. And really, earlier in the chapter, he gave them some guidance on how. But this, the command itself shows us, oh, okay, if we can be commanded, it's, it's doable, it's attainable by God's grace. His scripture, he, he only commands that which we can do. Second Corinthians 13.5 is a, kind of a well-known verse. Second Corinthians 13.5, at the end of... 2 Corinthians, he commands them. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. That's a present active command to test yourself. And, you know, it means Christians should not base their present assurance simply on their past tense faith. In other words, what we will learn later that, you know, you shouldn't base all your assurance on, you know, the fact that you had that experience at high school camp 20 years ago. And so now I know I'm assured. Assurance is a present tense reality. It needs to be a present tense reality. We'll, we'll see that later. But clearly, though, Paul wants them to pass the test. He wants them to examine themselves. He wants them to recognize this. It's what he says. Recognize this about themselves. What does he want them to recognize 
about themselves. He says that Jesus Christ is in you. That's another way of saying, you know, saved, born again, right? And dwelt with Christ. That's another way you could define assurance. Now, I have recognized this fact about me, that Christ is in me. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. Christ is in me. And Paul, though, at the very least, sees this attainable. This is not just a frustrating, impossible test. He wants us to examine ourselves and, Lord willing, come out on the other side passing the test, although some might fail the test. Some people shouldn't have assurance. That's something, though, like I'll keep saying, we'll we'll get to later. Hebrews uh, 6.11. Hebrews 6.11 you know, a little bit of time. I'll actually turn there because I think we'll need to look at the context for that. Hebrews 6.11. So I'm getting you to verse 11, but let's go back to verse 9 and just read a little bit of the surrounding context. Hebrews 6, 9. He says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so you know, back in verse 9, he said, what are the things that accompany salvation that he was talking about? Well, in, in verse 9 and 10, it is their work. Verse 10, and it is their love. Their love for God. And their love for others and ministering to others, verse 10. That, that's, that, those are the things that accompany salvation. Their deeds of love and their deeds of obedience. They were fruitful, loving believers. But the audience of Hebrews was mixed. And in verse 11, it, it appears the author is talking to people who've not been performing so many works of love and obedience. And so what does he say to them? He desires that, that all of them, each one of them, show the same diligence of work and love as the rest. Why? So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, there are those who were not in the audience of Hebrews performing so much acts of of love and obedience, not so diligently. They may or may not be saved. That's going to jeopardize the assurance of their salvation. And the author of Hebrews is telling them just to be diligent to essentially, you know, work out, your faith and show those works of obedience and love that they might enjoy and have the full assurance of hope until the end. You got to have hope, you know, just, just by definition, you have hope, but he wants them to have the full assurance of hope that it's not just a wishful thinking hope. It's not a hedging my bets hope, but no, it's a full assurance hope. It's what he wants them to have. And so the fact that he, he tells them, he desires each one of you, show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. 
at least we're making clear this is something that can be realized. And that is our only point right now. It's attainable. It's something you can realize yourself through various means. One more verse here, Hebrews 10.22. If you're there, you can flip over. Hebrews 10.22, he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's not a direct command here, but it's still an exhortation to have full assurance of faith. The author of Hebrews knows just how important it is to have full assurance of faith, to know who you believe, to know why, to be assured in him, in God's promises, in your salvation. The author of Hebrews knows how important that is to finishing the race, to perseverance, and he wants them to have that full assurance. All right, so just to finish our time, a third line of reasoning just to establish the attainability of assurance. Are we wasting our time or not? We're not. You know, from the language of Scripture, from the commands to pursue it, we see that you know, assurance, it's, it's a real thing. We, we, can, we can realize it. Thirdly here, a last line of reasoning, you know, from the fact that others have attained it. From the fact that others have attained it. A few examples here. Hey, Old Testament, let's... Let's use Job, for example, an interesting verse. You know, if Job didn't have, you know, faith and a measure of assurance in his faith, could he have endured? But he says a well-known verse, Job 19, 25 and 26. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. It takes assurance to say something like that. And he's not saying, I hope that my Redeemer lives. He's, verse 26 is his hope in resurrection. That even after his flesh is destroyed, that from the flesh he shall see God. He doesn't express this in wishful thinking. This is his hope. He's clinging to it. And there's no wavering or doubt in what he says. He knows that his Redeemer lives. And he knows he's going to see God even after death. He shall see God. Job looked like he had assurance. You have Paul himself, who made it very clear he experienced assurance of his own salvation. In 2 Timothy, the letter he writes before his departure, 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And he's speaking of his salvation, his inheritance. And there's no wavering in what Paul says. And he, he really believes in Jesus. Like he's, he's thoroughly convinced. He knows whom he has believed or in whom he has believed. And he's just convinced that he's going to finish the job. That the one who started his faith, will perfect his faith. He's just convinced. And that, that's a way of talking about assurance. It's a convincing that you are saved. It is that where you could say, I, I'm just, I'm convinced I'm saved. I'm convinced that the Lord will 
deliver me safely into his kingdom. I'm convinced that when I perish, I will be in his presence. Paul was convinced of that reality in his own life. Likewise, 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, you read Catholic dogma about assurance where they they do not believe you can or have or should have this type of assurance. I'm not sure what they make of this verse, but I know they make of assurance that it's presumptuous. Like, how how can you really say that that you for sure are going to heaven when you die? You don't know that you're not going to fall away. You don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. How can you really say? They're really missing the point that assurance is a a present and, in a sense, subjective experience that you have, though. But like I said before, that does not mean it has no objective, real basis. That it's, it's ultimately based on God and his promises. And Paul is just banking on, on Christ and his promises. And he's just choosing to thoroughly believe the truth. And that right there is, is like the lion's share of assurance. He's just, I, I really believe all this stuff. And so in the future, he can say with, with boldness, not arrogance, but boldness, that there's a crown of righteousness. It's got my name on it. It's waiting for me and, and I'm going to get it. He will award it to me and to all who love his appearing. He can say that because he's, he's trusting in the promises of God. And that's actually where we're going to start as the deepest foundation of assurance is just trusting in the promises of God. But the very least, though, we can say Paul did that and Paul experienced assurance of salvation. He knew he was saved. He knew what was going to happen to him when he died. That's assurance. Lastly, just John, since we already looked at 1 John, well, John had assurance. I mean, he made that clear, 1 John 4, 16. He says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then 1 John five nineteen, he says, we know that we are of God. We'll see that more and more with John, but, but there's no doubt that John, for the same reason, and, and just trusting what, what God has said through Christ, we know, we believe that, we believe what God has said, and so we, we've come to know this love. We know we are of God. That's assurance. It's the knowledge that you are of God. And John had it as well. So just a handful of reasons, though, to hopefully demonstrate to you that this is a worthwhile study, worthwhile pursuit, assurance of salvation is a real thing. It's something that can be attained, realized. Uh, There's a wrong way to go about it. There's a false assurance. We need to find the right way. What's genuine assurance look like? I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be that person who knows without a doubt they're going to heaven when they die, but they're wrong. Well, the good news is it's all just based on scripture. Through studying the scripture and Bible study, you can know both. We're going to aim to do that flesh it all out in the weeks to come. For the very least, or at the very least though, I can encourage you with this. You know, no matter where you're at today, when it comes to your own assurance of salvation, you can at least be encouraged to know that it is possible to have assurance. It's possible to gain assurance. You're meant 
to gain it. And all that's left is to find out, well, how do you gain it? Which we will do. I guess I shouldn't say that's all that's left because there's even more. There's even more than that that's left. So we have a lot to cover. But I look forward to it. Hope you do as well. And we will resume next time. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time in your word, this Bible study tonight. That's what we aim to do as Bereans, those who search the scriptures diligently just to see what they say for so many truths. But this one, this one matters. That, well, they all do. But it hits home. We, this is an experience you want us to have. You revealed the gift of salvation. You gave us the gift of salvation. You went to great lengths to procure it and sending Christ to die on the cross and rise from the dead. How could it be that you wouldn't want us to know it and to know that we have received it? And to the contrary, Lord, you very much want us to know we have received it with full assurance because it's so vital to living a Christian life you want us to live with joy and thanksgiving, with security, the full assurance of hope, our witness. So much is impacted by this assurance. And we need to know. There's perhaps a lot of ignorance on this subject, Lord, so I pray you open our, our minds to your word to behold wonderful things from your law. And just fill it, fill it up, fill it with truth that we can know and then be assured and that we can likewise say we know in whom we've believed and we're just convinced he's able to guard what we've entrusted to him until the final day. And that is our hope and as our joy as well. Thank you for Christ and may we be built up in him. It's in his name we pray, amen.